Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, we as Americans love stories where there's a fork in the road where the main character has to make a major decision about which way he or she's going to go. Now, a lot of you know that I'm a big Star Wars fan, and, and Star Wars is, is basically a, a, a metaphor for life. And you've got the, the character Anakin Skywalker, the young boy that grows up to be a Jedi Knight. And all throughout his, his time, he struggles with whether he's going to be obedient to Obi-Wan and Yoda and he's going to walk the path of being on the, the, the good side of the force or whether he's going to be drawn to the dark side of the force. And we know the choice he makes in that third movie, episode three, Revenge of the Sith. He makes the wrong path choice and he becomes Darth Vader. He becomes a machine, all twisted and evil. And this is really a metaphor for life. Because there really are only two paths in this world. You remember the movie Karate Kid? The famous words of Mr. Miyagi? Not that he's the best theologian, but he told Daniel's son this. You walk on this side of the road, good. You walk on this side of the road, good. You walk right in the middle, squish, just like grape. You remember that? Some good theology from Mr. Miyagi. You got to pick which side which road you're going to walk. This has been captured in one of the 20th century's greatest American poems by Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. This is what he said. Two roads diverged in the wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And sadly, Jesus tells us about these two roads. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 13-14, Jesus says these words, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So my question this morning for you is, which road are you walking on? Which path do you find yourself on this morning? Now, why do I draw your attention to these two paths? Because it has everything to do with the Psalms, especially Psalm chapter 1. Today, we are going to start a new sermon series called A Summer in the Psalms. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring many different types of Psalms. And and oftentimes, the Psalms are those books of the Bible that we come back to over and over again. I don't know about you, but it seems like the, the mo, most Christians kind of camp out. They're, they're afraid of the rest of the parts of the Old Testament, but they kind of, they like to camp out in the Psalms because when you're discouraged, you go to the Psalms. When you need uplifted, you need to go to the Psalms. When you need to worship, you go to the Psalms. They, it seems to, to resonate with us. And so this morning, I want to take us on a journey before we get into Psalm 1 to answer some preliminary questions. What is a Psalm? What is a Psalm? Well, it's poetry. It's Hebrew poetry consisting of two or more lines 
that are usually parallel in nature and they create meaning through repetition, through metaphor, through imagery. When you read the original language, there's the sustained rhythm. It's the music book of the nation of Israel. And I don't know if you know this, but there's 150 psalms that span over a thousand years in writing. Psalm 90 is the earliest psalm. It is written by Moses. And then Psalm 126 is the latest psalm written as the children of Israel are in exile. Many different authors over a thousand year period. I don't know if you also know this, but the psalms are made up of five books. Just there on page one of the psalms, it says book one. And as you go through the Psalms, you find out that there's five books. And at the end of each book, there's this benediction that says, Amen and Amen. Now, why do we have five books within the one Psalm? Does it remind you of somewhere else where we have five books? The first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Psalms mirrors that pattern with five books. So understanding the Psalms relates to going back to God's plan from the very beginning with the first five books. And so it's not only this worship book, Psalms of worship, Psalms of praise, but there's also life instruction. It tells us how we respond to God. It gives us wisdom. The Holy Spirit has inspired these psalms not just to write praises to, to God personally, but it's, it's corporately for us as a body of believers. Now, you know this intuitively when you read the psalms, but the psalms have different types of genres. Now, you may be asking, what in the world is a genre? Do you read the comic strip the same way you read the sports page? Anybody here read those the same way? Anybody read the editorial page the same way that you read the classifieds? You intuitively know when you go to a newspaper that you read it depending on the genre. When you open a book that says, once upon a time, you know what you're reading, right? You're reading a science textbook, right? No, you're reading a story. It's a different genre. And so when you go to Netflix or you go to Redbox and you go to rent a movie, How do you normally pick a movie? Sometimes you pick a movie because it's the latest one out, but how do they categorize the movies? Action-adventure, thriller, romance, western, foreign, strong female lead. Netflix has got it down to a science as far as how they, they categorize their movies. And so the Psalms have different genres. So instead of reading all 150 Psalms this summer, what I want to do is I want to expose you to the different types of genres that the Psalms contain, so that you can be exposed to the different types of ways that the Psalms express themselves. There are wisdom Psalms, Psalms that give wisdom. There are hymns of praise, probably what you're most familiar with, praising God. There's confidence Psalms, praising God for for having confidence in Him as King. There's Psalms that confess sin. There's Psalms that lament or express a deep longing to be in God's presence. There are psalms that exalt God as creator. There's thanksgiving psalms, and then there's psalms that have a mixture of all of them together that really defy categorization. So we're going to look at the different genres of psalms, but there's one question that we as New Testament Christians have to ask, and this is an important question that's oftentimes left out when we study the Old Testament. Here's the question. When we read each psalm, we've got to ask a very important question. What does this psalm teach me about Jesus. What does it teach me about Jesus? 
Now, we understand that the Old Testament, and especially the Psalms, was a praise book for the nation of Israel. But Jesus, when he rose from the dead and he met with his disciples on the Emmaus Road, he gave them some very important information about how we are to read the Old Testament. In Luke 24, 44 through 47, listen to the words of Jesus. Then he spoke to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus flat out says the Old Testament, the Psalms, the prophets, and the law of Moses point to me. So as we read the Old Testament, we've got to be asking the question, well, how does this point to Jesus? What does this tell us about Jesus? And so we're going to study Psalm 1 this morning. It's the first psalm in the canon of Psalms. It's the introductory psalm. It sets the tone for the rest of the book. It's the foundational psalm. It is a wisdom psalm. It's a psalm of wisdom. But before we dive into this, we need to understand how the original audience would have read the psalms. How did the original Hebrews, when they read this psalm, what would be their context of thinking? Well, it really goes back to God's covenant that he made with them in Deuteronomy. If you remember in Deuteronomy, God said... You will be blessed as a nation if you obey my law. Things will go well for you in the promised land if you obey my law. If you do not, if you do not obey my law, if you become idolaters, you will be under a curse. You will be kicked out of the land. Things will go bad for you. And we know that eventually what happens to the nation of Israel, they're they're kicked out of the land. And so when we think about the Psalms, it's this whole idea of living in covenant relationship with God, being blessed by following him, being cursed for not following him. So I want you just to to backtrack with me for a moment. Turn back in your Bibles. I know, keep your finger in, in Psalms. One, but go back to Deuteronomy for just a moment. Because I think Deuteronomy chapter 30, Deuteronomy chapter 30 sets a stage here for us in how to understand, especially Psalm 1. How would the original audience, the nation of Israel, those people living in that time, how would they have understood blessing? How would they have understood the covenant that God made with them? So Deuteronomy chapter 30, let's start in verse 15. And this is Moses speaking to the people on behalf of God right before they're about to go into the promised land. So they're standing on the plains of Moab. There's the Jordan River. They haven't crossed over yet. God is giving them instructions before they go over to take the promised land. So Genesis chapter 30, verse 15. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but you're drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, 
obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Blessing, curses, life, death. There's two choices. There's two options. There's two paths. There's two roads. And so as we come to Psalm chapter 1, the question we've got to be asking is, what does a truly blessed person look like? What does a blessed person look like? Now, if you remember when we did the Beatitudes back last fall and into the, and into the winter, we said that the Beatitudes were things that God gives to us in sovereign grace. We don't earn these things by works righteousness, but God in his grace gives us a new identity. We're born again through the power of the Holy Spirit. We receive the gospel. Christ saves us. We have a new identity and we are blessed because of the gospel. And it's the same thing here. A truly blessed person is blessed not because you earned it or because you worked for it or somehow you deserve it. It's because God has chosen to show you that blessing in the gospel. And it all comes back to Jesus. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. So what does a truly blessed person look like? What does it mean to be blessed? Because our world does not understand that. If I sneeze, what do you say? God bless you. We have bumper stickers that say, God bless America. We throw that term out all the time. You know, have a blessed day. Well, what does it truly mean to be blessed? Well, here's the definition. Here's what Psalm 1 encapsulates. Here's the main theme of Psalm 1, the truly blessed person. It is this. The truly blessed person walks in God's ways and delights in God's word. You walk in God's ways and you delight in God's word. Now let's see this unpack for us this morning in Psalm chapter 1. So turn back to Psalm 1. It's a short psalm, but it packs a punch. And it's going to lay before us what the truly blessed person looks like. And it's going to contrast two distinguishing ways in which to live. So Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed. And by the way, that is in the plural in the Hebrew language. We really don't want to translate it blessed, blessed, blessed. It's, it's kind of this idea that you are extremely blessed. Blessing upon blessing. So blessed is the man, or the person, if you will, because there's, there's men and women here, boys and girls. Blessed is the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This psalm shows for us the contrast between two types of people, the blessed person, the wicked person. And so we see this unfold in three 
major ways. It's very simple to see. Verses 1 and 2 is one idea. Verses 3 and 4 is another idea. And verses 5 and 6 is another idea. Three foundational verses that show the blessed, or that show the distinction between the blessed and the righteous. So here's the first one. In verses 1 and 2, we see the foundation. The foundation of the blessed person versus the wicked person. The foundation. Now, why do I use the word foundation? What, what, the, what the psalmist is going to lay out here is, is the character, the foundation, the framework, the attribute, the, the chief characteristic. What defines these two people? What's, what's their foundation for living? And he starts off with the downward progression of the wicked person. Blessed is the man who does not. And he starts out with the wicked person. And we see this downward progression. And it's done in triplicates. It's done in threes. Notice what he says here. The first, the first of the three. Blessed is the one, the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He's walking. What does walking denote? You're moving in that direction. You're kind of going toward the wicked. You're checking things out. You're on the move. You're walking towards the way of the wicked. Notice the second one. Nor stands in the way of sinners. Okay, you've slowed down. You're not walking, but you're standing. You're hanging out. You're loitering. You're lingering. You're checking things out. You've moved from walking towards sin to standing next to sin. Now notice the third progression. Nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You've moved from walking to standing to sitting. Now, what does sitting imply? You're comfortable. You're settled. You're not going to get up. You're not going to budge. You're not going to move. You've made your bed and you've lied in it with sin. You're sitting. It's a settled and stubborn rebellion. This downward progression. In other places in the Psalms, in Psalm 26, 4-5, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. So you've got to ask yourself a question this morning. Are you sitting with the wicked? Have you gone from walking to standing to, I'm sitting. It's my identity. It's who I am. I've got this settled, rebellious attitude of sin. Proverbs 14, 6-7. A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain, but knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. And when Proverbs talks about a fool, it's not talking about a person that's stupid or, or a person that's an idiot or has low IQ. Fool means morally and spiritually bankrupt. A person that's made unwise choices. Now, there's a contrast. That's the wicked person. The wicked person has made this downward progression to settle into a rebellious lifestyle of sin. But, notice the contrast, but, verse 2, the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There's this hunger in the blessed person for God's word. Now notice the text here says, He delights in the law of the Lord. Now, don't just think of law specifically as the Ten Commandments there. That word Torah, it's kind of an elastic meaning in the Old Testament. Sometimes it means law, but oftentimes it can mean just God's word, God's teachings, 
God's standard. And so what it is is that we have this delight, this hunger, this passion for God's word. We want the word to to sink into us. Like Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let Let it dwell in you teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, do you find that a little strange, the wording? Delight yourself in the law of God. We don't often use the word delight when it comes to law, do we? We don't drive down I-76 and we look at the speed limit sign that says 75 miles an hour, and we're in our car and we look at that sign and we say, I'm delighting in this. This brings me enjoyment. I see the speed limit sign, and I've got this great joy in my heart for the law. Or when the policeman stops you, and he comes and writes your ticket. You know, thank you for showing up, because I so much delight in the law of God. I'm glad you showed up here. I delight in the law. We don't often use the word delight when it comes to law. What word do we often use? Obey. Respect. We obey the law. We respect the law. But do we delight in the law? You know, C.S. Lewis was kind of um, mesmerized by this as well in his reflections on the Psalms. He thought it was utterly bewildering and mysterious for the psalmist to delight in God's law. Now, in and of ourselves, we cannot delight in God's law, in God's word. It's something that the Holy Spirit gives to us when we become a Christian. When God saves us by his grace, when we're born again, he gives us this hunger, this delight And so here's the issue. How do you approach God's word? Do you approach it as, this is a list of do's and don'ts and regulations that I have to obey to be in God's good graces? Or do you view it as God's love letter to his children in this grand story of the story of Jesus Christ coming to save his people from his sins, and you look at the word as, this is what I get to do because God has changed my heart to love him. See, how you approach God's word shows where you are. Do you love his word? Do you delight in his word? Are you hungry for his word? And notice what else it says. Not only do we delight in the law of the Lord, but we meditate on it. Now what in the world does it mean to meditate? Joshua 1.8 says the same thing. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous And then you will have good success. Now, does it mean to sit in a lotus position with your hands out and go, om? Is that what meditate means? Our culture is kind of confused with meditating. In the actual word used there in the original language, it means to groan or to speak out loud. Now, here's the issue. We don't often understand this because we're modern people. Silent reading is a modern convention. Most of you are silent readers, aren't you? You read silently. When you read the newspaper, you don't read it out loud, do you? You read it silently. Back in the old days, they read out loud. And the reason they read out loud was so they could hear it, so they could vocalize it, so they could internalize it. That's what it means to meditate, to think about, to ruminate, to stew over, to concentrate on the Word of God, to to let it truly sink into you. Now, it's been very dry here in northeastern Colorado, thankful for the rain last night. But, you know, let's, let's just talk about what we'd rather have. Would we rather have a daily shower for 15 minutes that comes down and hails and washes off, 
Or we'd rather have a week long of that slow, steady, dripping, moist, wet rain. Which one would we rather have? The second. That's what we need to let the Word of God do to us. That slow, steady, dripping. It's like marinating meat or chicken when you put it in marinade. It soaks in. Meditating means we let the Word of God soak into us. That we think about it. We're continually, it's on our lips. We're thinking about it all throughout the day. We're meditating upon it. And when we meditate upon God's word, it leads to obedience because it's always in our, ho- our thoughts and our minds. We're delighting in God's law. We're meditating upon God's law. We're, we're, we're sinking it in. So that's the foundation between the two people. One foundation is a settled rebellion where you're sitting in sin. The other foundation is that you love God's word and you want it to sink into your heart. You're meditating upon it. Now, let's talk about the fruit. We've seen the foundation. In verses 3 and 4, we see the fruit of the lifestyle of the blessed versus the wicked. What is the fruit or what is the result of the blessed person? Well, the psalmist tells us there in verse 3. He, this is speaking of the blessed person, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. Now, it's interesting, the word that's used there for streams of water, it's a man-made irrigation ditch. We understand that here in northeastern Colorado, don't we? Dry land farming, we have to have irrigation ditches. A man-made irrigation ditch, what does it do? It gets water to the crops. How do you know that there's a stream when you're driving down the highway, when you look over to a field? You see a grove of trees, and you know that there's a stream there. Sometimes they're natural, sometimes they're man-made. This was a man-made stream. And notice what happens. It's like being planted deep into those root systems and having the water of those streams sustain us, nourish us. When you meditate upon God's word, when you marinate in God's word, when you delight in God's word, God plants you deep and he gives you sustenance. He gives you fruit. He gives you spiritual nourishment. I love Jeremiah 17. 5 through 8. Very similar to this psalm. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Do you you see the imagery here? It's a person who has such a deep root system that God has dug in your life and he constantly is sustaining you and nourishing you spiritually. He's giving you the vitality of Christ. It's like what the psalmist said in Psalm 34, 8 through 9. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Now, what does it mean to prosper? It says right there, and all he does, he prospers. Our culture loves that word, prosper, prosperity. Is this, less, is this a successful equation for, like a math equation for successful living? A plus B equals C. If I avoid sin, A, plus I read my Bible, B, C, I'll get my Ferrari and a million dollars. Some of you are laughing like that. I wish that was the way it worked. 
Sometimes televangelists will tell you that on TV. That's what it means to be prosperous. Does this have anything to do with material blessing? It could. But I'm thinking in the context, what prosperity means here is that you are receiving your sustenance from Christ. Like we sang earlier, all I have is Christ. He's our life. We're connected to him. He's strengthening us through the Holy Spirit. He's giving us power. He's giving us roots. It's this prosperity that, that, that it may not be financial, but no matter what comes your way, you know that you're in a position where God is feeding your soul through the word of God and you're being planted. You're planted. Now, look at the contrast. What's the fruit of the wicked? Trick question. There is no fruit. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, we know what chaff is. It's the stuff that doesn't belong on the harvest that's blown away. They'd use those winnowing forks, and they'd throw it up in the air, and the chaff would blow away, and then the good stuff would settle down. It's like chaff blowing in the wind. Isaiah 29, 5 through 6. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. In an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. That's God coming in judgment. And oftentimes when the Old Testament talks about God coming in judgment, there's this issue of chaff, burning away the chaff, blowing away the chaff. As a matter of fact, that's what John the Baptist said Jesus is going to do when he comes. What did, Jesus, what did John the Baptist say Jesus is going to do? Matthew 3, 11 through 12. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The chaff are the wicked that burn. That's the fruit. Now, it even gets more intense here. So we've seen the foundation We've seen the fruit, but let's look in the last two verses and see the future. Or the finality, if you will. The future of the blessed versus the wicked. What's their future? Two paths, two choices, two lifestyles, two types of people, two foundations, two fruit, two futures. It's very scary. Verse 5. Therefore, therefore, it's coming to a conclusion. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Basically what the psalmist is saying is there's a day of judgment coming, and the wicked will not stand on that day of judgment. They will not be acquitted. Listen to what Psalm 37, 12 through 13 says. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. There's a day coming for the wicked. Jesus tells us about it in Matthew 13, 41 through 42. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out his kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God 
And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might. There's one thing you need to understand about the Bible. There's no middle ground. There's no limbo. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either adopted into God's family or you're a child of wrath. You're either a Christian or you're a non-Christian. You're either born again or you're still dead in your transgressions. There's no middle ground. And there's no second chance after death. The Bible's very clear that there is, there, there's two ways to live. There's two types of people. There's two destinies. And the word there that's used, the very last word there, the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked. That's the most repeated word throughout this passage. The way, the way, the way. It means lifestyle. Your life. If you live an unrepentant lifestyle of wickedness, your end is destruction. Perish. And when the Bible uses the term perish, it doesn't mean you just cease to exist. It means that you suffer eternally in hell. Listen to Proverbs 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's a lot of people in our world that seem like they're going the right way. They're going their own way. There's a way that seems right. I'm charting my own course. I'm going my own path. Some may be walking towards the center. Some may be standing. Some may be sitting. But all the time they're thinking, this is what I'm going to do with my life. It seems right. There's a way that seems right to man. But, but the Bible says it leads straight to death. Narrow is the road that leads to life. And few are on it. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. And many are on that. So, the wicked perish. They suffer eternal anguish. But what about the blessed? What's the future of the blessed? What's the eternality of the blessed? Well, they'll experience a covenant intimacy with God. Now, why do I use the word covenant intimacy? There's a very interesting word that's used here in verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows. Yada knows. I know Zachary. He's my son. I know facts about LeBron James, who just won the NBA championship with the Heat. I, there's a lot of things I know, but there's one person that I really, really know. My wife. Adam knew his wife, Genesis 4.1, and she conceived and had a son. That word know there in the Bible conveys sexual intimacy in a covenant relationship between a husband and wife. And God uses the metaphor of being Israel's husband and the nation being the bride, and God has pledged himself in covenant love to his bride in the sense that if you are a Christian, God knows you intimately. He knows you specially. He's not just knows about you. He's got this intimate covenant relationship with you through his son, Jesus Christ. And one of the things that's going to happen is, is that when we get to go to heaven, we will experience the joy and the consummation of being with God through Jesus Christ in this covenant, intimate expression of love that's like no other. It's an amazing, powerful love that God has for his children. But not so the wicked. They're not going to stand on the day of judgment. They're not going to stand. In other words, 
They can't plead their case. They can't say, I did this, I did that. They're going to stand naked before the living God in horror because they don't have Christ as their Savior. So, the original audience, the Israelites, would have read this psalm and they would have said, okay, two ways to live. The blessed person walks in God's ways. He delights in God's word. But we have the rest of the Bible, don't we? And Jesus said everything points to him. So let's ask the question, what does the psalm tell us about Jesus? Well, I don't see Jesus' name show up there, Sean, so what does it tell me about Jesus? Well, let me just tell you this. Jesus Christ is the only true blessed man who's ever lived. You and I are stained by sin, and you and I aren't perfect, and we can have glimpses of this blessing, but the only true blessed man who's ever lived is Jesus. Now, what describes the blessed man? The blessed man delights in God's word. Did Jesus delight in God's word? Yes, perfectly. But not only did Jesus delight in God's word, what do we know about Jesus? He is God's word come in the flesh. Jesus is the word of God. John 1, 14. The word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, and he dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is the blessed man because he is not only the one who delights in God's law, but he is the ultimate word of God. But let's, let's think about this for a moment. In this psalm, what do the wicked experience? They experience judgment. They experience being cast away from the presence of God. They experience not standing on the day of judgment. They experience the judgment of God. What do we know about Jesus? While totally innocent, as the blessed man, he experienced the full judgment of God's sin, coming down upon him on the cross when he bore our wrath in his place and died as our substitute, being cursed, not blessed, cursed. Do you know what Galatians 3.13 says? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So Jesus is not only the only truly blessed man that's lived, but he was also cursed on our behalf so that you and I would not have to experience the curse of God's judgment, of God's wrath, of God's wickedness. So the only way you can truly be blessed in this life is to be in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ and what he's done. He is the word of God. He experienced the curse of God and he rose again and offers himself as the only one that can give you a relationship with God. So let me ask you a question this morning. I'm not going to ask you, do you know God? Does God know you? Are you in a covenant relationship with God through his only son, Jesus Christ, to where you have that relationship with him? Or are you like the wicked where you've got a settled life of sin where you're sitting in the seat of scoffers and on the day of judgment you're going to blow away like chaff? You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that when you trust Christ for salvation, when you trust in him, when you repent of your sins, when you come to Christ in faith, he plants you like a tree next to streams of water. He wipes away your sin. 
He gives you a new heart. He gives you eternal life. He gives you life with himself. Listen to what Acts 3.19 says. Repent, therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. What happens when you repent? Times of refreshing come from the Lord. He plants you like a tree next to streams of water where you receive the vitality of Christ. You're totally new. So if you are a wicked person here today, and pardon me calling you that, but the Bible calls you that. If you are a person here today that does not have Christ in your life, The word today is repent and believe in Jesus so that times of refreshing may come. And what better time than this morning to trust in Christ alone so that you can be forgiven and have those deep roots planted and have eternal life and have a life that glorifies Christ. Now to the Christian this morning, you're already a blessed person because of your connection to Christ. Can I remind you of one other passage of Scripture where Jesus talks about being planted in him. Something we need to be reminded of. John 15, 5. This is Jesus. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, <clears throat> he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Christian, let me ask you a question this morning. Are you abiding in Christ? Are you dwelling in Christ? Are you walking in his ways? And are you delighting in his word? Are you prospering in the sense that not that you're making a million bucks, but are you deeply planted in that foundation of those streams like the tree? Because you've got that connection with Christ where you're abiding in him and he's abiding in you. And apart from him, you can do nothing. We fool ourselves to think that we can do a lot of things. And we can walk and chew gum at the same time. But spiritually, eternally, significantly, we can really do nothing without Christ. And Jeremiah says, don't trust in the arm of your flesh. Don't trust in man. Trust in the Lord. So my encouragement to you this morning, Manuel Baptist Church, is this. When you walk out of this place... Know for certain that you're the blessed person because you walk in God's ways and you delight in God's word. And may you be prosperous this week. I'm not going to be like a Vulcan. Live long and prosper, you know, Spock. What I'm going to say is, may the God of peace through Jesus Christ, as he is the vine and you're the branches, may you abide in him this week so that apart from him, we can really do nothing. And that may he do great things through us for his glory alone. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I want you to think about this morning which person you are. Are you the wicked person that you're sitting? You're sitting in sin. You've got comfortable in sin. You're, you're living a lifestyle of rebellion in sin. It's settled. It's rebellious. You're, you're comfortable in that sin. And you know on the day of judgment, you won't be able to stand. Because you're not a tree planted. You don't have Christ in your life. 
Would today be the day you look to Jesus and find him as the one that took your curse, the one that took your place, the one that experienced the judgment of God on your behalf so that you could be freed, so you could be forgiven, so your sins could be completely wiped out, so that you could receive grace? Would you call upon Jesus this morning? The Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And in an instant, you will go from being a person of wickedness to a person of blessedness through the power of Jesus Christ in your life. Would you call upon him today? Christian, for us here this morning, maybe we're just not hungering for God's word the way we should. And maybe we need to ask him to give us an appetite. And maybe we don't feel like we're planted next to that stream. Maybe we feel dry. Maybe we feel like the chaff. May we be encouraged this morning that to, to rely upon Jesus as our vine. We're just a branch. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Whatever you need to do this morning to communicate with our Savior, I want to give you the opportunity to spend some time doing that in prayer this morning. So spend some time in prayer, asking the Lord to search your heart as you respond to him and to his word. Father, we're thankful that you have given us the Psalms. And Lord, right from the shoot, from this very first Psalm, we we see a, a foundation between two types of people, the wicked and the blessed. And Lord Jesus, we see that you are the truly blessed man that ever lived. Not only did you perfectly delight in your Father's word, but you are the word made flesh. And as the wicked in that psalm perish because of God's judgment, Jesus, you died in our place experiencing God's judgment so that we could be freed. So that on the day of judgment, instead of standing in our own righteousness, we would stand in your righteousness and be accepted because of what you've done for us, not because of what we've done. Because, Lord, if we were to stand on that day, all we'd have would be filthy rags. We'd have the stain of sin in our lives. And we'd be blown away like the chaff. So thank you, Jesus, for dying in our place. Thank you, Jesus, for being our vine. That apart from you, we can do nothing. That that you're the vine, we're the branches. Lord, give us the strength to abide in you. And Lord, I pray this week that we would just be meditating upon your word and thinking about your word and dwelling deeply in you, being like that tree planted. And my prayer, Lord, is that we would be a prosperous people, not in a material sense, but Lord, we just experience the joy of the Lord and the strength of the Lord and the fruit of the Spirit. And Lord, just that we would be a spiritually minded, deeply rooted people that have the joy of the Lord in our hearts through Christ. So thank you, Jesus, for your grace and for your mercy. And we also, Lord, just continue to pray for our Moscow mission trip team. Would you bless them? Would you encourage them? Would you strengthen them? Would you protect them? May they always be on our minds and hearts this week as well, too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.